All right, Jess, who are you and what do you do? Well, hi, uh, my name is Jess. I lead the Australian marketing team for Square, and that means a bunch of different things. Uh, <laughs> within my team is brand marketing, performance marketing, we do content marketing, social media, lead generation, and local marketing analytics. So, a little bit of everything. <laughs> is there, in that wider team at Square, is there anything in particular that you've really outsourced to this day? Is it mainly creative ads or something else in particular? I think how we've outsourced has changed a lot over the years. Like if you look at creative, for example, all I would say 95% of our creative is actually done in-house. We've got like an incredible team um, that specialize on like the creative strategy and creative ideation. And then we bring in production partners to help us bring ah, that okay. to life. Yeah, so yeah. that's kind of that delineation. Whereas some people might hire a creative agency that do all of that from start to finish. Yeah. So I guess, what do we outsource the most? Oh, I'd say we do some things in-house and th some things with agency partners across almost everything that we do. Mm. I mean, if you were to look at performance marketing, for example, like we've got a, like, an amazing in-house team that do that all over the world, but we also work with like an incredible agency partner that helps us like do it better, do it quicker, do it at scale. Yeah, I think it just... It seems every time I have someone in and we talk about teams today, particularly for challenger brands, yeah. there's always like the creative component more and more is built internally mm. for the brand and there is elements of activities that you'll use an agency for scale. Like we said, performance marketing seems to be like this real area that still to this day is lent on. And then also production. Production's a no-brainer because like – I don't think many brands are going to invest in high-tech camera and audio equipment that a couple of years from now will be sort of out of date. So totally. it makes sense. I think it can be really different. Like if you look at brands like Apple and Nike who like might work with the White and Kennedys and the AKQAs of the world, like they, they're kind of, they have a reputation for doing a lot of really great work with incredible agencies, whereas you might look at someone like Square or you might look at someone like Squarespace, and at least my understanding is that it's a lot more about in-house teams. Mm. Really? There you go. Tell me, how did you – I was curious looking at um, how you got into this space. So you graduated from Swinburne. I'm also a Swinburne alumni. So you did Bachelor of Business. I'm trying to think. I think I did – they may have changed it to Bachelor of Commerce. It's probably like the same, honestly, the same degree. But it was a really long time ago that I did <laughs> well, this degree. Well, it's not that much longer. Like I wrote here early 2000s, so I would have graduated a few years. I would have studied a few years after you, maybe five or so. And it was Bachelor of Commerce, Commerce, and you choose your majors and all that sort of stuff. I know your first role out of uni was at L'Oreal, marketing intern. Then you moved into a marketing coordinator at Icon. Why? Well, I guess when did you notice, how early did you notice that sort of marketing suited your personality per se? I had no idea what I wanted to do when I was at high school. <laughs> like I, I can remember I went to a couple of information sessions at some of the universities and, you know, some of the advertising like people would stand up and tell you why they love their job and what they did. And to be honest, like I was like, 
oh, that sounds kind of cool. Like I went to a pretty <laughs> academic school where everyone wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer. I knew that wasn't me. Um, yeah. So to be honest, I think I fell for the spiel that the ad guys gave at some of the information <laughs> sessions. Um, what I knew that I was always interested in is like design and working with creative people and working on fun projects. Yeah. And like marketing is done exactly that for me where, where was like how old were you when you started to realize that you were a creative person were you much into like drawing did you have little hobbies at all was there something in particular I don't position myself as a creative person I think <laughs> I do position myself as a creative marker marketer but I'm more of a curator and likes to bring things together like I'm really interested in architecture and design and uh -huh. like um, I love going to art galleries and I, I love you know I fell into fashion that was the industry that I spent most of my professional career in <laughs> yeah why why fashion do you think was that like the area of design and creativity that you had like the most? affinity for or was it as simple as like I'm, I want to get a job I need to go for this thing let's go here 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 and then L'Oreal came back and and you were able to get that intern position um, when I think about L'Oreal and that move like I knew that I wanted to work in fashion and back then L'Oreal were one of like they ran one of the premier like intern oh, yeah. programs like it was it was a lot of fun and they did a really good job with it but L'Oreal was synonymous with fashion because of the work that they did with the L'Oreal Melbourne Fashion Festival, affectionately known as LMFF. Um, they did a lot of brand partnerships. Like it was a really big part of what they did. And that was part of what attracted me to working at L'Oreal. In terms of like working in fashion more broadly, like I, I really like working on interesting brands, interesting projects and being surrounded by interesting people. Like I often found that when I worked and you mentioned Icon, um, for those of you who don't know, like Icon is or was the owner of Lee Jeans and Wrangler in Australia. That's right, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, actually the, the company that I worked for, I was there for almost seven years. It had three different owners during that time. So it was <laughs> owned by Icon, then Pacific Brands, then True Alliance and Wow. And that can sometimes be hard to see uh, if you look at my CV. But when I worked for those brands, like we developed all the products locally, we de um, developed all the marketing locally. Like some people who bought Lee Jeans back then thought it was an Australian brand. Um, it was pre-globalisation. Like we had a very unique strategy for the brands here uh -huh. in Australia. And I used to find that I would be kind of sitting amongst the designers talking about like their inspirations and what brought the collections to life. Like I, I really enjoy that process. Yeah, you could say like that was sort of the peak of traditional fashion that sort of 2000 to I think Zara was really like the not the death now but it was the signal that fast fashion was coming through but it just reminded me of that that era I was like really really into fashion I remember like applying for all these internships I did textile course at uh high school and I was the only guy in the course and but but uh, there was another guy, but he was really like into couture and I, I was like more into suits and that sort of stuff. Mm. So, yeah, I, I didn't really fall into it as much as I thought that I would. I was curious, what were sort of the magazines that you read that we, you, you were passionate about? 
Oh, do you know what? We, um, my partner and I went to my parents' house on the weekend and we opened my wardrobe from my childhood oh, no bedroom. Way. And the inside of the wardrobe was all of the photos um, from and rip, uh, all the rip-outs from the magazines <laughs> that I used to read. And it was, like, honestly nothing cool back then. It would have been, like, Cleo and Cosmo and all that kind yeah. of stuff. But then when I started working in fashion, I discovered the likes of uh, Rush magazine yeah, and Rush. Yen magazine and Lula magazine and, um, I, you know, French Vogue, like, like, they're, they're like, oh, I, I, so to this day, I have a shelf that looks something like this, but like triple the size in my home. And it's filled with all sorts of old magazines from back in those days. Like, I, right. I, I, ha I have a very soft spot for them. I remember when Lauren and I first met, we were obsessed with Rush. Yeah. Yeah. Rush, Rush was the, the magazine. Um, it was really, there was, it was quite lacking for men in the stuff that I really liked. But then all of a sudden, I found uh, like the rake and Man About Town. And there was another one, but they sort of came along later mm. and they were definitely more European. So um, it's quite an interesting era. And they still like uh, the rake as an example still exists to this day. Like, do you know Double Monk? I don't. Mm. Street it's like a real men's shoe brand. Mm. They're one of the only people who still still stock the magazine. Mm. But um, it's, it's like a bit of a culty sort of, one of those culty magazines that's still kept up just because it looks amazing as a coffee table book i remember my last my year 12 vcd project was like basically a copy of that i created my own magazine it was called like bow <laughs> so cringe to think about it in hindsight but um you know that stuff is always fun as well when you think back to studying and first setting out in the industry what resources do you wish you had at that age the internet was not that <laughs> developed yeah. back then, to be honest. Like, you know, we had... MySpace days. Yeah, <laughs> I was pre-MySpace. Like, yeah. um, I think that we have really, like podcasts weren't a thing back then. Like, no. I think a really great way to learn is to, you know, type in marketing or type in performance marketing or brand marketing or brands that you're interested in and you can listen to... CMOs or you can listen to like creative directors from these brands talk about how they do, why they do, and you learn a lot from that. I am a big fan of LinkedIn learning. I think really? the so we have access to that um, through Square. And during ISO, you know, you have a little bit more time to walk and reflect and learn. And I spent a bunch of time digging into certain topics. There's actually heaps of really good content on there. Yeah, they really um I remember if 2018 I actually can't remember when the Microsoft acquisition was, but mm. they really invested in editorial mm. and then getting other people to produce good material in LinkedIn Learning. So I actually never thought about that. It's not a sponsored post. No, not sponsored <laughs> at all. Definitely not sponsored. <laughs> well, your career is pretty significant. I mean, Icon Clothing, True Alliance, like Icon Clothing, like you said, had Icon itself, but there were different owners of Lee Jeans and Wrangler. True Alliance... Wrangler, we've got Topshop, Topman. God, I remember when that came out in Australia. It was like the biggest deal ever because um, I was obsessed with it when I went to the UK, like very first time in 2008. Country Road Group, the Couples, we were chatting about that off air. And then finally, now today at Square. When you think about all those different jobs and you've been able to condense over 17 years some general golden principles are there any that you always refer back to coach staff on 
or think about in your head in particular? Totally. I have learned so much over the many years and I've made a lot of mistakes and then there's a lot of things that um, I bring forward to me within every role. Um, The first one is actions speak louder than words. Like, you know, to be really candid, we work in marketing and advertising and there are some people that can talk the talk, (laughs) but what's really important is that we walk the walk, that we're really accountable for what we say we're going to do and we deliver. And I think that applies to like people as marketers as much as it does to brands and how they show up. Like you can say you're environmentally sustainable, you um, are an inclusive and diverse um, uh, diverse brand, but you need to show up in terms of your um, your product decisions, in terms of your employer decisions, the, the policies that you implement within your company. So I'd say, you know, actions speak louder than words in terms of who you are as a marketer, but also who you are as a brand. Yeah, and you probably say the way I can sort of see how that is is that oftentimes because it is a bit of a smoke and mirrors industry, you get... Sometimes, and this is more so probably on the agency side, you get people talking about returns, performances, et cetera, and it it can't really be viewed that way until you have actual data and decisions, I think. When you, are there any other principles that really come to mind at all? There's two more that I would share. Uh, One is less is more. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Like, I think this won't be any new news to anyone. Like when you're a marketer, there are so many things that you can do. There are so many campaigns. There are so many channels. uh, There are so many influences that you can work with. Like if you try to be everything to everyone and you try to do everything, you'll be nothing, but you'll also completely burn out your team. So Mm. I'd say like do a couple of things, do them really well. And then if you're ready to try some new things, then move on. And I think that's really important for anyone as an individual, as a team and as a brand. So less is more, number two. Mm -hmm. Number three. So this is going to sound a little bit odd, but don't be a jerk. Like the industry is small. Like you can't do anything yourself. You need a team. You need great internal partners. You need great external partners. Like... You know, I can remember back in the day where some people might send some sharp emails and say some kind of quite rude things things to (laughs) agency partners. And like, to be frank, there's just no need. Like you can be kind, you can be direct, but be transparent as well. Yeah, we've we've learned this recently indirectly because we've got a talent management component of our business. Mm. And there was an agency we know – the founder pretty well and I had a lot of respect for and they've gone through it's basically come out that they haven't been doing the right thing by their talent and I don't think that they were aware at the time how much people were speaking about it and it really highlighted to me that if you're just nice if you're just good in the industry people like word of mouth in this industry is more important or damaging than anything else, I find. Could not agree more. And uh, it was really interesting because in the the guests that we've had on our on the marketer series, uncommon series that know this agency, have always spoken to us about it off air, and I found that really really interesting. So for me, that was like that was such a valuable lesson recently, and highlights what you said. Yeah, and there's there's all. On the other side as well, on the creative side, there's always been some interesting chats with clients where you go, oh, wow, okay, uh, that's interesting. So those key three principles you've got today, 
Um, I've got to ask, when you look at like your roles, very retail focused, if you think about it, or retail fashion focused. Um, before I want to ask about why financial services slash square, why go in-house versus an agency? Again, I'm going to reference like my time at university when I was reading fashion magazines and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. At the time, I thought I wanted to go agency side. So there was uh, a specialist like youth fashion agency called Spin Communications. You oh, might yeah. remember them. They were yeah, quite yeah. famous for running Australian Fashion Week and doing a lot of really interesting work. Um, the role at Lee and Wrangler came up and as it turned out, Spin Communications were our retained agency. So I got to work with them indirectly. Okay. <laughs> and then just client-side opportunities just kept showing up with the right brands. So I, I think agency side would be a lot of fun. A bunch of my close friends work agency side and I, I hear a lot about it, but I just went one way and kept going. Yeah, and you just sort of went head first. Yeah. Um, Square's a bit of a change if you think about it. It's, it's, it's very much like more, it, it's still in that retail fashion space obviously, but there are obviously going to be other areas like services. I think I mentioned to you on the way up here, um, I see Square everywhere in like all of my sort of personal service providers, like barbers or like a massage place or you always see that Square device. What made you get into this area? So about four years ago, I yeah. was traveling around New York. And what do you do when you're in New York? You <laughs> shop and you eat and you drink. Yeah. So I was at a store um, called Glossier, which is a, a makeup brand, okay. um, the kind of famous-ish one. And I was also at a bar called Dimes. Um, and I can remember going to the counter and going up to pay and this like beautiful, like chic looking like device was on the counter and they span it around, like tapped my card and entered my pin number and, and gave them a tip and it was all really seamless. I was like, I'm very design led as a person. I was like, wow, this is quite nice. And I'd been working for the Cripples before that and we'd spent a whole bunch of time designing our stores, which have like these beautiful marble counters, uh, yeah. trying to figure out how we hide these big, ugly, black point-of-sale devices. <laughs> so I saw this and I was like, why doesn't this exist in Australia? Like, this is really beautiful and really seamless. And then came home, saw the job ad for Square, um, head of marketing in Australia, and was like, Dang. yeah. <laughs> Did you ever, before you left the Couples, manage to get them to integrate Square into the business? I would have loved to, but that transition was a little bit <laughs> It quick. would have been a bit tough, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because... <laughs> yeah, I gotta say, like it, that brands like Square have really changed the way that we all see point of sales. Like it's, it is very interesting how much of that sort of classic bench top area would just was just covered with crap, like point point of sales machines, computers, whatever it may be. Mm. Now sometimes you go into a store, if it's more of a boutique store, and it's just like a clean bench and just like a tablet or a little point of sales device, and it's. It's so much better and looks, I don't know, there's something about it. I don't know what it is, but it's just so much nicer. You said when we first started off that, you know, you've got performance marketing, brand marketing, pretty much everything, production, whatever it may be. And that is, I think, the role of a CMO today. I think I wrote here that the job today is part brand strategist, part performance marketer and novice data analyst. You know, you're probably always looking at P&Ls and 
data sources of sorts and people telling you about what's going on. What is like the most crucial elements of your toolkit today at Square? I'd say you're right. There are a lot of different facets to what we do. Um, the performance marketers within my team will have very defined dashboards that they might look at uh, every morning or sometimes every hour, depending on what's happening. Um, the brand marketers might have some different dashboards and that might be more about like brand awareness, traffic, um, consideration levels. Our content marketers will have their own dashboards. Our marketing analysts will be obsessed with our net promoter score and their own different things. So in terms of like giving you a list of specific platforms, which I'm sure would probably be really helpful in what you would like. Like at Square, we have uh, a lot of internally developed tools and platforms that yeah. we leverage. Uh, and each of the different members of my team have their own various dashboards and their own things that they look at at different cadences. I would say like for people in other brands, like there are lots of kind of free and accessible platforms that I'm sure you probably know better yeah. than I do in terms of what's available within the Google suite, um, the Facebook and Instagram suite. Um, like there's programs like H uh, H HRFs. Um, yeah, HRFs, yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, that you can use to do your SEO research. There's, there's yeah. a, there are a whole lot of those types of platforms, but I can't give you a, a magic toolkit, um, <laughs> but I can tell you that it's very important. <laughs> well, when you wake up in the morning and like what's your go-to? Are you checking emails? Are you checking uh, a different type of dashboard? Are you looking at the square dashboard in and of itself? What do you look at? Um, I look at, we, we have a kind of broad dashboard that looks across the business and that yeah. will look at traffic, that will look at acquisition numbers, that will look at like profit metrics, um, that we, we have a wonderful attribution model which will tell us where our acquisition is coming from mm. across various different channels. Like the stuff that you have access to at Square in terms of data and analytics, it's the stuff that like we would have dreamed of having in my previous life within retail and fashion. Like you spend a lot of time as a marketer <laughs> justifying what you do and the impact that it has on a business. And it's really nice at Square that you can just point to a dashboard and say like, that's what that's we did. What, yeah, <laughs> it would be very, very data driven. Mm. The insights you guys would have on consumer behavior would be fascinating. Like to, I don't know if you have data analysts here in Australia at Square, but um, yeah, it'd be one of those really interesting things where, like, I don't know if you've seen uh, head of operations at um, Uber will get up and talk about like traffic flow and stuff like that. To see that data visualized would be, I, I would assume for yourself, pretty interesting as well. My team in particular focuses more on like the marketing analytics side yeah. in terms of like what our, you know, the Square, what we call a Square sales or our, our customers that are using Square. Um, we're very careful and private with their information and that never goes anywhere outside of the business. Um, but I have no doubt our product teams are looking at that in very um, specific detail. <laughs> now, when you look at like the foundational channels, the, if you were to pick a top two or three that are just an absolute must for you as a brand. What are they? It's going to be different to what you might expect. Okay. And the reason I say that is I can remember when I first started at Square and my predecessor was briefing me. We had just launched Square Stand, which is that beautiful white device yeah. that I was trying to describe before. <laughs> and he was telling me that we'd just run all these ads on television and I'd just come into the business from a retail environment. And okay. I was like... Really? TV? I would have thought everything would be so 
digitized and, you know, it'd be a very specific audience. And I, it took me a while to get my head around it. But for Square, I would say like our channel mix is very much a combination of like kind of traditional above the line channels and very, very performance led as well. So yeah, right. like search acquisition is really important for us. Mobile acquisition is really important to us. But those um, more kind of brand storytelling platforms are really important to us too. Yeah, because you've probably gotten to a point where those initial days of performance, digital driven stuff, you know, you get to sort of a peak of performance and then the conversation has to change from being transactional around transactional information to really like story and learning about the brand more. And that's probably where the brand has started to mature as well. Totally. Yeah. Well, there's only so much demand um, that you can leverage on performance true, channels. You, true. you need to create that interest yeah, you do. from other channels. Which <laughs> is a really tough job. And so that to me is like what, make someone go from a head of marketing or marketing manager to the CMO because you can think bigger picture about that stuff. So I guess I'm curious, you've got all these people asking you to do all these different things from different departments of marketing. How do you view at a higher level creating that sort of demand and brand awareness of Square in the market? My dream is that I tell someone I work for Square and they're like, oh, I know exactly what that is and what you do. Okay. Uh, there is so much work that we have to do to, to get to that point. I, I love that you have had um, <laughs> such a great experience and that so many of your favorite retailers and, and barbers are, are using Square. In terms of how we prioritize which activities to focus on to enable that, I mean, that comes down to like, at a high level looking at what our global strategy is going to be and then identifying like how we're going to bring that to life locally. Locally, yeah. Uh, and then looking at the channels and tactics uh, across the board and how that comes together to make the magic to then light up our dashboards like Christmas trees. Yeah. <laughs> how have you viewed like localization? That's an interesting one because I <clears throat> probably had the first opportunity recently to engage a global brand for an account. This was specific to... I'd say it was like social driven video and um, they were really trying to localize their content. And I had my own ideas around how you go about that. There's the obvious things like actually getting local actors. You know, it's always funny when you get the original global material and it's like, well, that's clearly not filmed in Australia because you can just tell by like the trees, the background, the environment, all that sort of stuff. How do you sort of think about that? How do you do that here? In Australia? That's a great question. And there is absolutely <laughs> no black and white answer to yeah. this. Like, you know, when I think about my time at L'Oreal, um, I can, you know, it's a French brand and there's something really nice about buying like a, like a Parisian yeah, like, true, true. Um, cosmetics item. So when we would get the TV ads and we were localizing those, like we would maybe do a voiceover. But if you put an Australian voiceover, like uh, for a French brand, <laughs> sounds really weird. Like yeah. similarly, when I worked for Topshop, we would do some radio ads from time to time and having like an Australian accent, like talking about a British high street brand, like it just doesn't, doesn't work. No. It doesn't always work. So I would say there's a balance. Um, I think it's important that the audience understands that this message is for them. It's mm. not something that we're just kind of dropping into the market and expecting it to work. Uh, but I think you have to balance that kind of maybe the balance is 
70% global, 30% local, and you fuse that together, I think that will be different for every industry and every brand. Yeah, it sort of sounds like you've got to have a sense of what, how the brand is perceived locally and what for. Like particularly in fashion, it's obvious that a lot of these brands would be like, okay, this is social capital. I'm buying L'Oreal because I'm trying to show something about myself or I'm buying like a Louis Vuitton handbag because I'm trying to show a perception of myself socially. It would be really hard to do that and find out. I've always found in digital services it's really hard. Like how do you – and I guess all you can do is just test things mm. and start somewhere. Right? But, I mean, look, let's go back 30 years and if you look at Apple, like would yeah. you have thought that a laptop or a phone would have been a brand-led like purchase? <laughs> Probably not, no. So I think I don't know, I have – brand like running through my blood in terms of decision making and that's because I've come from fashion which is very brand led but I think it's all very possible and uh, I don't want it to come across like we're pulling the wool over people's eyes like it's it's just creating a, an emotional bond with your audiences and like showing a shared set of values and representing the quality uh, that comes across from your product with your brand. Yeah. yeah it's the little tangible things like like we were chatting about earlier the fact that I've gone into the bar and I, I still to this day recognize that square device. Um, it's it's the little things like that that you can sort of articulate locally, I guess, in some form. Mm. I'm curious from an agency point of view, obviously you mentioned before about engaging agencies that can help you scale things, sometimes perform better. Like performance marketing seems to be one of those areas that because they've got all these specialists internally that they can really outperform a brand. Uh, like it's one of the few areas today I think that still exists. What what would you like to see more from agencies and what would you expect more from agencies over time as, as their industry changes and the business model changes as well? It's such a broad question because there are so many different types of agencies and there are so many different needs. Like as an example, you know, TikTok is an emerging channel, yeah, which I yeah. understand that you guys work uh, on uh, very, very closely. Brands might want to hire an agency with deep expertise that can help them get into the channel, like bring that expertise into the brand because they might not have the ability or the finances or mm. the time to be able to do that themselves. So I'd say like, you know, you might hire an agency because you want a level of specialization that you can't or just won't for yeah. any particular reason hire in-house. Um, you might hire an agency because they can go quicker. They've got a bigger team. You might hire an agency because you just want to test the area. Like you might not yeah. want to build out a fully fledged strategy around a new channel. You might just want to test it for a period of time. So there are so many different reasons why you could hire an agency at a different time. And that changes in terms of the brand maturity. Like, you know, if you're a startup and you have like one marketing person, you might need an agency because you need some extra like sets of hands and some extra expertise. When you're, uh, you know, a really established brand, it might be that you want deep specialist expertise so that you can be like the best brand around the world. So mm. it's, it's broad. It's, yeah. So it sort of sounds like, and I think this is a general trend, specialization in particular for those reasons that you mentioned, but sometimes uh, a, a different type of agency for scale. That seems to be the, the overarching trend that I'm getting from people in interviews. That's good to hear. Um, it's good to hear for us at least because we, we did dive pretty deep on that, um, that TikTok area. The product itself, Square, is pretty unique. Um, I think 
I was asking you coming in, like who are the main competitors? And I still to this day really struggle to find someone that has a similar product. There's obviously like if you you think about um, that ComBank product, I can't remember what it was called, like Albert or something like that. Like there are obviously copycat products that came out afterwards that are sort of like feature products of current brands. There, there's the fact that it, like I, I feel that it's quite a distinctive product. Um, how are you guys trying to make, from a marketing point of view, make Square stand out to sort of Tyro, Tiro, the big four banks, others that exist in the marketplace? So for those who know Square, a lot of yeah. them know us for our little white credit card reader, which, hang on. <laughs> you've, got a, you've got a copy of here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So for anyone that might not know what it looks like. <laughs> do you carry that around just like if you have like a meeting, you just want to show people? I do. Absolutely. If I'm meeting people, they're like, oh, who do you work for? Square. And then they you, they have that moment and you're like, do you, you seen one of those? And they yeah. have that immediate light bulb moment and they know exactly what you're talking about. And they'll tell you the five businesses that they've shopped in uh, where they've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's funny. When I worked in the denim industry, I spent my life looking at people's butts to see what brand uh, dev jean they were wearing. <laughs> uh, whereas now all I do is walk past businesses and look at their counter. Just trying to look at the polish system <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So what do you think is like the main thing that stands out? Do you think it's like the the the, the smallness, the agileness of the, the physical product? Is it something else in the software? Like what do you think is like the sort of defining element of the product that allows it to succeed? There are a lot of different things. I think the beautifully designed hardware is something that everyone can see and it's very simple um, for everyone to identify. The thing that people might not understand is the depth of the product. So uh, we sometimes describe Square as like a one-stop shop for small businesses and an example of that is um, your your barber. They might accept payments with Square on their reader. They might use our appointments product to like book in the appointments. They might use our invoices product so that they can send invoices to, you know, they might have done a wedding and they might need to, you know, um, invoice that out. They can also build an online Square with uh, an online shop with Square. Yeah. So like it's, it's an all-in-one um, platform that you can do anything that you need to do. You can even get a small business loan. So I think that, you know, you see that little like, credit card reader, but you don't necessarily realize what that unlocks. Yeah. And I, I think the biggest thing to me when I spoke to my barber was like, it's, um, it is very similar to sort of the Apple experience, the Tesla experience, where you're sort of fully integrating as much as possible to build product value. Um, I've always wondered when is Square going to get into the banking business? It sort of sounds like you've got it, pardon me, in different parts. You've got processing of payments. You just mentioned business loan. Um, I do wonder when like retail (laughs) accounts and that sort of stuff come out. Is there any particular products that you can divulge or talk about that you're excited for in the next, or product developments in the next 12 months, let's say? Well, I can say is um, we did just launch uh, Square Loans here in Australia, which is a really exciting product that's been around in America for some time. Mm. Uh, look, I can't say what the future product roadmap looks like. I can say there's some really exciting things happening. And I mean, if you have a look at some of the products that we have available in the US, like there's lots still to come. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a keep an eye out on what's going on there. Before we Before we finish off, I've got to ask, you know, you've had a career now where you've gone from 
roles that were, you know, assistant marketing manager to being a manager to being a head of a department, let's say uh, marketing and e-commerce, and then essentially uh, oh, head of marketing is really a CMO role. So you've had the different stages of everything in between. How do you see a marketer jumping, other than time, other than time in the job, this is the same thing I asked Kate Howard last week, other than time spent in the job, is there something in particular that you think marketers can do to go from sort of that basic level to intermediate to sort of that overarching CMO type role in particular? I think it's really important to invest in yourself and invest in learning and development always. So whether it be you're a performance marketer and you need to kind of get better at your craft and you might want to transition to being a kind of head of marketing or a marketing lead that works across channels to do that, I think it's not just understanding your craft, but it's also understanding the soft skills, the management skills, like influencing stakeholders, like selling in ideas. Yeah. Like there is so much more to it. It becomes, uh, you know, owning your craft is one part of it, but there is a management component to it, a leadership component to it. it there's, a, there's a level of complexity that comes with that type of role that you might not have in a specialist kind of entry to mid-level role. The best way to learn that stuff is to lean into all the platforms that we have available. I mean, mm. we're very lucky at Square. We've got a lot of really great kind of internal ways that people can learn and grow. Uh, if you don't have that stuff in the business that you work for, like look at things like General Assembly, look at things like True. LinkedIn Learning. Yeah. My favorite way to learn is actually through osmosis and surrounding yourself with clever people. Like it's funny, actually, a lot of my close friends work in marketing and advertising. Like I, I have friendships with a lot of my old managers and leads. Like we <laughs> might get a coffee or have a wine and I, I enjoy chatting to them as mates, but I also learn a lot from those conversations. So yeah. one question I often get asked is like, do you have a mentor or should I get a mentor? And to be honest, I, I might have a slightly different point of view there because I think you should surround yourself with interesting people and learn from the people around you. Um, but I don't think it needs to be a title. No, I think the moment that you um, apply a title on someone, you, you impose something that's unnecessary. I would consider someone like previous guests, Dan Monheit, Nick Hodges, uh, both heavily embedded in the marketing and media space. I would consider them mentors, but I would never, it would be unusual to say that to them because the, the moment you do that, all of a sudden it becomes like this obligation for them. And it's sort of seeing, I think what you said is the best way to do it, osmosis. Catch up with them, talk about technical things so you learn about those specific areas and then grow as an individual. It sort of sounds like, and I've noticed this across maybe people like yourself and Kate who are at that sort of CMO role is having – it's hard because I've, I've wondered this. Do, does someone accelerate to a CMO role quicker by jumping in different roles? Like there are obviously different elements. So let's say you're a lead, you're just a general marketer, you start in a general coordinator position and then when you get to that management position as a marketing manager, do you consider moving to – lead roles like performance marketing or e-commerce or digital, which is sort of what Kate did, but she only did it for a little period of time. And I've always wondered, is that the thing that allows someone to make a jump quicker or is it just, you know, is it just different for everyone? 
Sometimes it's timing and luck, and when the opportunities present themselves, you get thrown in the deep end. I think opportunities are given to those who are already punching above their weight. Yeah, and seeking it. If you do the homework, if you do the learning and the development, and you're ready, and you're showing to your lead, and you're showing to the industry that you're ready, then I have complete faith that those opportunities will come. Yeah. I do I'd want to be crystal that. clear that I'm, I'm not the CMO for Square. We have an incredible know, yeah, global yeah. head of marketing. Head of marketing. <laughs> um, but, but I play this role for Australia. <laughs> yeah, for, for Australia, I think, the, look, the way I see it is uh, a sort of the lead role is that sort of senior leadership position. The way I see a head of marketing CMO, it's very different to a marketing manager because of the, um, what did Kate say the other way? I think it's mainly just the financial element because you're part like CFO, part CMO in a way. It's a really weird position and, um, yeah, it just requires different complexities in the role, I think. It's so different. You need to get your CFO on side. You need to get your CEO on side. Yeah. Like you, you are setting the path for marketing within your business and that yeah. is such an important role. <laughs> very, very important. Um, I think... That's everything. Jess, thank you for coming in today. Where can people find you on the interwebs? Where can they find Square in Australia? What would you link them to? I would say follow Square over following me. <laughs> <laughs> Square AU at on Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, and there's a Square LinkedIn profile uh, on a, a global one. For me, you can add me on LinkedIn, Jessica LinkedIn, Cook. Yeah. I'm not very good at LinkedIn, but I'm there. <laughs> Jess, thank you so much for coming in. And uh, yeah, thank you. Pleasure, Jordan. It's been fun. Mm.